0: Well, we did it. We made it to 2023. These days, it can feel like an accomplishment to make it to the new year. But when you look back a year, there's just as many incredible things happening alongside everything that makes us want to tear our hair out. Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm producer Thomas France, and I wanted to take just a short pause and recap this past year here at this podcast. To help me, I enlisted my fellow producers Kaylee Monahan and Amanda Luberto and asked them about the stories they gave to us in 2022. Here we are at the start of a new year, 2023. So let's take a quick look back at the previous year here at Valley 101. And let's start with Kaylee. What has been your favorite moment working Valley 101 in 2022?
1: Favorite moment? Well, gosh, thinking of that term, I'd have to say favorite can mean so many things. For Valley 101, though, favorite moment would have to be going with uh, the paleontologist Gavin from the Arizona Museum of Natural History and going on a uh, fossil dig uh, up near Black Canyon City. And we actually did find some fossils, some very ancient mammalian fossils. What about this guy?
0: That's a fossil. Ooh. It might have some anatomy, too. Ooh. It's got a flat surface on top, and I don't okay. think that's a rotor. I think that's real. Ooh, and it's kind of circular. This might be, that might be like a knuckle right there. Do you mind if I give you these little things? Will I go get a baggie? Yeah, Which i should I'll have brought. It. Thank you so much. Sorry to no, you're fine. put you to work.
1: No, I'm happy to help. <laughs> <laughs> In jogging back to where his backpack is, Gavin called out,
0: you get a field member named after you, too, because you found stuff.
1: Oh, nice. There's a lot of reasons why it's harder to find dinosaur fossils in Arizona.
0: That's incredible to go on a dig for, a, for an episode and actually find something.
1: It was pretty special. And not only did I find something, but, you know, this doesn't sound that amazing, but it was like I found a piece like the size of your thumbnail, which is actually a pretty big piece, given the fact that how much turbulence has happened in Arizona land over the millions of years. There used to be tons of volcanoes here. So the fact that anything survived at all is mind-blowing.
0: Pretty insane, yeah. Amanda, what would you say is your favorite Valley 101 moment or episode?
2: For Valley 101 specifically, it was definitely the two-part series that I did in the beginning of the year about Lincoln Ragsdale. He was a pilot a politician, an activist, uh, just a mover and shaker and an Arizona icon. The story started with the fact that he helped desegregate schools in Arizona a year before Brown versus Board of Education and that Phoenix was really on the forefront because of people like Lincoln, but it really evolved into this much bigger story I was so so fortunate to speak to two of his children we had a really intimate conversation about not only their memories growing up but also like what it's like when your dad is this big icon I would have to say we I felt like we have a happy childhood but they had code that they would be talking in front of us. So if they were talking about a white person, they would say W. If they're talking about a black person or a black situation, they'd say B. So we didn't feel like there was a racial issue going on because they're using code talking among themselves in front of us. Just talking to them about him teaching them how to fly airplanes and like little things like that and, you know, going to their sporting events and and, but also the fact that They were on the receiving end of his activism. They were two of the first black children in some of these schools. And that didn't necessarily work out as, you know, lovingly as it sounds on paper. But they also were very aware of, like, what was going on in the big picture and how much pressure that puts on you at, like, 15. But I also got to speak with Herb Eli. Herb was a civil rights lawyer during that time and is just the backbone of Arizona in that regard. He was very generous with his time and his stories, and they were very good friends, and being able to hear about, like, New Year's Eve at his house and things like that, along with the fact that, like, her would help him protest at the Capitol. So it was really a mix of both this iconic political and social story, but also who was Lincoln as a man. And I was just so fortunate during the entire experience that people were talking candidly and lovingly and realistically about the whole thing. So I was just overwhelmed with gratitude of being able to be a part of telling that story.
1: Well, and I have to say that it's a story like that that makes me love Valley 101, but it gives us producers an excuse to look into something The executive terminal, you know, is named after him. And it's just like something you don't really always think about. It's like, oh, the Lincoln-Ragsdale terminal. Okay, great. Nobody really thinks about who that might be. And somebody asked a question. Who is this Lincoln-Ragsdale? And the fact that he was such an incredible airman, his history here in Arizona, um, all those changes he made, it's just like it was like tapping into the ground and all of a sudden a spring Yeah. Bops up. And I just, I loved every facet of that two-part series. Yeah. Incredible story.
2: But it starts with great questions from our listeners. Like, it's just something that has become part of the background when I drive around Sky Harbor. And I never thought to ask. And someone did. And that's why we love this show is that you guys are so thoughtful.
1: And now there's an exhibit up in Terminal 4 with, like, his original gear, which is so cool.
2: It is really cool. So that was a big moment for me for Valley 101 this year.
0: That is incredible. That is quite possibly one of the coolest stories I've ever heard. <laughs>
2: yeah. It's go listen to it. It's in two parts. It's really excellent.
0: <laughs> I will say, for me personally, I've been at Valley 101 producing episodes for only a short time, but I come to find that some of those questions can lead to really interesting answers. Mm-hmm. Like when I researched what happens when rain falls. You, you just think, oh, does it run off the streets? But the reality is that it's much more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting to go and kind of explore that avenue. What would you say has been the most complicated episode to produce? Either the oh most frustrating or, or <laughs> uh, something that maybe didn't get off the ground? Well,
1: I'll, I'll jump in. I, it, it did get off the ground, but it ended up being a very simple story that I overcomplicated, (laughs) as I tend to do. Uh, It was during the summer. And what really sparked it is seeing all the homeless on the streets during summer. Uh, We have a growing population of unhoused. And I just would worry about these individuals, you know, begging on street corners, and it's 115 outside. I mean, I personally always carried like water and like brown baggies with snacks and stuff but i was wondering like how do we as a society cope with this extreme heat we have those who aren't fortunate enough to have access to cool places so this led to how do we deal with extreme heat and it's only getting hotter mm-hmm. as time goes on here in phoenix so i talked to medical professional, about how do they treat people who come into the ER specifically. A lot of the times these are people who are unhoused or they're on drugs and they just, their senses are not connecting. So they don't realize how hot they are. Even people who like fall on concrete, they get burned. That's how hot it is. And so talking about what needs to be done from a medical perspective? How do you get cooled off? Which is like a very practical information.
2: And just even being like wildly dehydrated and how much that affects your body.
1: Exactly. If you've been out drinking or just, you know, outside and you don't have shade, you don't have water, it's can be really terrifying. And how quickly your body deteriorates with extreme heat. Like mm-hmm. it does not take long for you or... Essentially for your brain to fry, <laughs> to put it <laughs> indelicately. Yeah. But then like you have all these organ failures start happening. It's pretty gruesome. But my next step was, was like, okay, well, what is like the city of Phoenix doing about it? And then that's when I talked to David Hondula, who oversees the the heat office, which is like one of the first of its kind in the country. Mm-hmm. It's one of the first heat mitigation offices run through a major city, through city offices. And so Mayor Kate Gallego appointed this ASU professor to find ways to mitigate our heat situation, like not only doing outreach and getting people water into cooling stations, but looking at how can we keep the city cooler, plant more trees, build with less concrete, all sorts of things. It's just reached its first year Uh, this past fall, this office. Um, So remains to be seen what more they will do, but conversation with him. And then I talked to a therapist who talked about like seasonal affect disorder and how people will experience sad in hot places like Arizona, where I think the stereotypical idea, oh, cold, gray, gloomy places. But no, it happens a lot in Arizona because you can't go outside. You don't feel feel like interacting with people, and that can really affect your mood. In uh, another study that came out in the Journal of American Medical Association, JAMA, in their psychiatry section, they had a study just that came out this past February that showed that days of extreme heat were associated with higher rates of mental health-related visits to emergency departments for all sorts of mental illnesses. Which was eye-opening to me. And I kind of concluded this whole thing by talking with a professor down at the University of Arizona about, um, you know, the one good thing about our extreme heat is it brings the monsoons. And our monsoon rains have a very unique smell, particularly when it falls on the creosote bush. And he's been studying the effect of your olfactory senses and how that can improve your mood. Um, So a little bit into healing oils, but from a more scientific angle. Again, a simple question. How does extreme heat affect us? And I went through all these avenues. Mm -hmm. And I'm really proud of how that episode turned out, how many aspects of our lives I was able to touch on that. And, you know, it's it's a topic that I'm still going to be following even in the new year.
0: So it sounds like you took what should have been a simple episode and turned it into this expansive wide range of topics.
2: <laughs> it was a study to like to be completely honest,
1: even more interesting to me like FEMA does not provide any support or financial help to states of extreme heat, but they will for states that experience extreme cold. As yeah. Our climate changes as areas do experience more heat, you know, at least the majority of homes in Arizona use air conditioning, but that can't be said for people in the Pacific Northwest or even back east. Mm -hmm. And as they experience more heat, like the national government, the feds are going to have to figure something out because it's not just
2: blizzards. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: No, it's not. Amanda, do you have an episode that Uh, was complicated or that frustrated you?
2: (laughs) To an extent, you know, they all reach a point where you have a a frustration and then you work your way out of it. But the two stories that I thought of when you first asked was one that I produced and then one I sort of helped produce with one of our interns. But I did in uh, mid to beginning of April, a story about what Arizona has been like one year since we've had COVID-19 vaccinations. I worked with um, Stephanie Innes, who is our health reporter here at the Arizona Republic and talk to her about not only how much her beat changed and covering it and everything that she went through, but also how Arizona gained access to vaccinations and who was able to get them. And then we did a big picture look at like how in April we compared to the rest of the country and things like that, who was taking the opportunity to get vaccinated, who had the opportunity first, like all of those sorts of things. And that was just something that, you know, there was a specific, time limit on it that I really wanted to hit. And I was able to ask a lot of interesting retrospective questions that, you know, there had been so many stories about like the start of the pandemic and how it affected us socially, which is, is equally as important. But I wanted to look at Arizona because we were one of the first states to get vaccinations, but then we were one of the slowest states to vaccinate and sort of how that sort of turned out and our access, but also our reachability and and all that kind of stuff. So that was a story that I worked on last year that provided its own challenges. But another story I thought of was actually the main producer was our summer intern, Maria Gutierrez. She worked on a story last year about UFOs and someone had asked a question basically saying, why are there so many UFO sightings in Arizona? And she did a very similar thing that Kaylee did is she took this simple question and and made it into a big thing. And she talked to believers and non-believers and scientists and people who have seen things. There was something that flew across the whole state from one end to the other and across into Mexico that was witnessed by tens of thousands of people. There was over a thousand 911 calls that came in that night. So, think about that. What else do we have to compare to that? I don't think we have anything that has that many 911 calls. And tens of thousands of people saw this and said something about it. So, when you have that much witness testimony, can you really say to those people, you didn't see anything? You're crazy. You saw a, a weather balloon or whatever it might be. So when you get that much witness testimony coming in, it can be evidence. Even though you don't have an artifact in your hand, you don't have the smoking gun. We worked together on getting through how you get those sources and getting people to talk to you and trying to keep all of it straight. But she essentially turned it into the question of, are we alone in the universe? And what a big question to tackle for (laughs) a summer internship. And she did such a good job. But I think that there were a few points where... It felt like giving up was maybe a little easier than trying to get all these people to talk, and she did a great job. But I remember helping her through a lot of that, and just getting people on record is, you know, sometimes the hardest part. <laughs> but she talked to a lot of great people, and I remember trying to figure out ways to get around, like, okay, we got to get the UFO guy like on the record, and right, how do we do it?
1: Right. <laughs> I, I thought, you know, I felt like having that person was going to either make or break the episode. Yeah. I There's something about, and I'm sure you know, Thomas, you want to hear all sides.
2: Of course. And usually
1: when we say that, we're thinking politics. But we wanted to have somebody who is a believer and somebody who very close to wants to believe, probably is a believer, but this one person who has has, said that he has experienced things. And a lot of the times these types of people, they're media shy because they feel like they get Handed the short end of the stick. Totally. Right. But what we made sure to do, and I think we always want to do on this podcast, is give everybody a fair shake and not misrepresent them. Yeah. Treat and,
2: everyone with respect.
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, Absolutely. you know, it turned into a really interesting episode mm-hmm. that, you know, I think few other podcasts have been able to do, specifically right. we because we got this believer who says he's seen things.
2: And she did a great job with getting a scientist and the conclusion of the story was essentially like, you know, maybe there's a bacteria that's technically alive, three planets over, does that count? It is...
0: Technically life. It is
2: technically, and that's basically what we came to and she did a really good job and that was just really fun to put together, but definitely one where a lot of roadblocks that we helped get over with her and she never, she never backed down, which was great.
0: Fantastic. It's always nice when you across an obstacle and you just don't let it go you, yeah. like a dog with a bone you just keep after it yeah. and it works out
2: yeah it was a lot of fun i was very happy for maria that was a good one
0: fantastic so you guys have both kind of touched on it already but i wanted to maybe dive a little bit deeper and see what was your best achievement that you accomplished in 2022 for valley 101
1: well i mean not to put words in your mouth, Amanda, but I think Lincoln-Ragsdale was your crowning achievement. I think
0: so,
2: too. Can I give one to you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think yours was the sage poaching. That story was so good. Um, um, and I think that's one that's going to live on for a long time.
1: Yeah, that one, it was such an interesting story. So our Indigenous affairs reporter, Deborah Curl, she did the investigation. So I was essentially talking to her about What she found with the sage. And I had no idea that the sage that you find in like your woo-woo stores, (laughs) (laughs) as I like to call them, or even, you know, your independent bookshops, your your witchy stores, those little bundles of sage for smudging is probably poached and stolen from native lands both here in the United States and in Mexico. And it's at such a rate that the plant is going to end up extinct if something isn't done.
0: Some enterprising people decided they were just going to go out to the preserves and they were going to go out in some, sometimes the people's private land, sometimes the tribal land, and just take what they want and sell it. And it's become, as one detective told me, almost a cartel.
1: But essentially, it's like these cabals of many layered organizations that, like, they have the grunts who go out and just coal the land of whatever sage they can to fill up duffel bags and big metal drums. And then that goes to, like, the next middleman, and they, like, process it. And then half of it gets turned into little sage sticks. Half of it gets pressed for oil. And, like, you need so much of those little plants to get any sort of oil out of them, mm-hmm. that it's just, it's a huge racket. And smudging's popularity has exploded worldwide, due in part for, to social media and all the influencers and celebrities who are like, I'm cleaning my aura. Mm-hmm. And again, appropriating Native practices without understanding the actual religious and cultural connotations, which white woman here, but <laughs> I find it, very, I find it aggravating when people take and they don't do their due diligence. With Deb, she said that, you know, she talked to people who are like, we don't mind sharing our culture. You can do these practices, but know where they are coming from and what they mean and what they represent. But there's uh, others who, this is ours, you can't have it. And Deb likened it to like, she walking into a Jewish synagogue and taking part of all the religious practices that happen, or into a church and like appropriating all those practices without really knowing the Torah, or if we're talking a Catholic church, like the Mass, all the various you know religious aspects and traditions, you wouldn't feel comfortable with that. So why do people think it's okay to tread all over indigenous and native beliefs? And it was a story that it felt in some ways like, I hope people listen to this. Mm -hmm. I really hope it sinks in. And I think it did. I think a lot of people tuned into that. And it's stories like that that are, again, surprising and really shows, shines a light on our amazing reporters here at the Republic and what they find. I can't take all the credit for that. But like, I learned so much. And so when I look at my mom's smudge stick in the <laughs> office, I'm just like, I glare at it. And I'm like, where did you get that? Where is that from? No more. You're not buying any more sage. Urban
2: outfitters. <laughs> where is that from? I think um, I'll take the question in a fun direction because I did highlight the Lincoln Ragsdale story, which I definitely also see as my, my big achievement of the year. But in a fun way, I got to combine my two loves and my two careers. Um, Outside of working at Valley 101, I've been the manager of a wine bar in downtown Phoenix for a few years and I've actually worked in the local wine industry for even longer than that. And this year, the winner of Wine of the Year, essentially, in Arizona was a brand new vineyard, and they won for a wine that's not very popularly grown in Arizona, and it gave me a very good excuse to tell this very fun story about how the wine industry in Arizona is super legit now and how much work they've put in in the past, like, 15-ish years to improve, and I got to talk with a reporter who covers budding wine industries. Honestly, Arizona has been one of the most surprising, one of the most exciting U.S. regions that I've tasted in a very long time. One thing that I've noticed winemakers are doing really well is they're not so worried about planting Cabernet and Chardonnay and grapes that I think a lot of people are rarely familiar with and grapes that are super popular. They've been doing a lot of work into finding out what works the best in their terroir she talked about you know what she likes about it and what she's looking for in new zones and and things like that new regions and then of course I got to go up to the vineyard and I talked to their winemaker and about, you know, how he started this, but why he put Merlot in. Um, I also talked to Richard Rellis, who is a reporter here at the Arizona Republic, but he also is in charge of the big wine competition that happens, sponsored by the Republic every year, in which this wine won the big award. And Richard is, you know, similar to me, a big advocate and is involved in the local scene by, you know, not only enjoying the wine itself, but he has been on the forefront of the storytelling of the wine industry for years way before anyone else was paying attention. So I got to talk with him about, you know, what makes Arizona so special and so different in wine. And I, you know, did a little science corner. I talked about like the soil and the water and where we are on the equator and how we grow different grapes and like all this kind of stuff. But it was just really fun to do sort of like a, a profile of this new vineyard and and talk about this very exciting industry that's bringing Arizona not only a lot of money, but also tourism. And it's like an hour and a half away from Metro Phoenix, two hours if you go down south to uh, two other beautiful wine regions. And just I love that Valley 101, we get to do a here's maybe something you didn't know, is like a, a, a an easy summary of the podcast. But I thought that that was like a really fun thing where I'm like, oh, I tell this story all the time at my other job. So now I get to put them <laughs> together.
1: <laughs> I, I, and I love that story. I, I, gosh.
0: You just touched on what I thought was the sum of both this interview and this podcast as a whole was that it is incredible that, we get to work at a job where our actual job description is going out into Arizona and discovering all of these incredible things that Arizona has to offer. All this great stuff, the stories, the businesses, the practices from our indigenous folk, and everything in between. We get to go out every week and bring those stories to our listeners. Well, if I can finish out by highlighting my personal favorite moment, I have loved every minute working here this past fall. And one of my favorite moments was exploring the history of a little ghost town, just about maybe an hour north of Phoenix called Vulture City. If you haven't listened to that episode, it is a fantastic listen. I highly recommend it. But the long and short of it is that Phoenix itself wouldn't exist. Without Vulture City and the resources that they were mining up there, they needed feed for their animals and their workers and very enterprising individual decided that a little section here in the Hohokam Valley was perfect and they revitalized the old Hohokam canals and we just built this city from the ashes of that indigenous Population
1: and like that's something I never knew. Like I knew about our canals. We've done a We've story. done that, <laughs> but the the tie of that it, that is just so cool.
2: Yeah, it's awesome.
1: It was a great story, Thomas.
2: It was a great way to to kick off our sort of spooky month too. It was. That was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Always love that month. It was was a good month. We had a lot of great
0: stories. Love talking spooky things. Yeah. So
2: (laughs) Well, I'm very excited about 2023. Please submit your questions. (laughs) We want to answer them.
1: We want all of your wacky, crazy history Physical landmarks. Even
2: your minor questions. I mean, the story about the (laughs) air conditioning on the roof, that was so fun.
1: Or like, what's next for Fiesta Mall? Or Metro (laughs)
0: Center Mall. Metro Center Mall. There's so many good ones. That turned into quite an unexpected turn. Yeah. I'm really excited to see the Urban Village when it's finished in two to three years.
1: We love our malls here. (laughs) Oh, yes. Arizona (laughs) loves
0: malls. All right. Well, this has been... Really fantastic. And honestly, it's very appropriate. Something that was supposed to last 10 to 15 minutes and be sort of a short recap of 2022 has turned into a very long discussion about favorite moments throughout the year. So it's very appropriate considering what we just talked about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Thomas. Yes, uh, thank you. thinking of this topic and it's kind of fun to go down memory lane for both of us. (laughs) I mean, Amanda and I are still kind of fresh on the pod ourselves, so, oh my gosh.
0: I know, look at that. (laughs) Well, if 2023 is anything like 2022, then I think from everyone here at Valley 101, it's gonna be a great year.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Amen to that.
0: So much for a short pause to look back, huh? (laughs) I guess when you have the chance to produce such amazing stories, it takes more than a minute to reminisce. Here's the new year's toast that 2023 brings as many great moments to Valley 101. If you'd like to share your favorite moment from 2022, reach out to us on Twitter at AZ Podcasts. If you have questions about Metro Phoenix or beyond, please submit them to us at valley101.azcentral.com. If you're a fan of the show, please share it with a friend and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm producer Thomas France. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next week.